A film is, or should be, more like music than like fiction. It should be a progression of moods and feelings. The theme, what's behind the emotion, the meaning, all that comes later. Stanley Kubrick. Welcome to Later. And welcome to the very first episode of Coffee After Credits. My name is Jay Schunkweiler. I'm a screenwriter, podcaster, but above all, an avidly obsessed cinephile. A handful of you may know me from my days hosting the wildly sporadic podcast known as Movie Nights, uh, a somewhat pulpy roundtable of three best friends essentially shooting the shit about popular films. Although those certainly were fun times, as a recent graduate seeking an outlet to explore film theory, I need to change course in favor of something a bit more focused and rewarding. Let me provide some background information. For my academic history, I earned both my BA in Cinema and Television Arts and my MFA in Screenwriting at California State University Fullerton. Uh, Down the road, I hope to teach as a film studies professor, but until then, I need an alternative outlet. In a world so inundated with conflict, existential fears, clashes of culture, and alarming political and social issues, I feel we've lost a part of our human identity, and we need to reclaim that. I breathe cinema, and one of the things I cherish most in this world is the power it has over the human experience. I want to help connect people with a medium that is introspective and reflective, with the hope of helping make a bit more sense of this crazy world in which we live, while also trying to learn a little more about ourselves. When it comes to film, it's no matter whether you consider yourself a casual or a connoisseur. Your favorite films might wildly differ from other listeners, from Bambi to Belle de Jour, Black Swan to Boogie Nights, Bullet to Breathless, Birdman to Bicycle Thieves. What truly matters is that we are all impacted in some way by film. Personally, after viewing a film, I find deep gratification in taking some time to thoroughly contemplate my experience, preferably over coffee and often with a friend or two. Only now, I'd like to bring that discussion to a wider audience. To you. So what is Coffee After Credits? I've thought a great deal about this, and I think I've homed in on a premise and format. What I want to do is continuously expound upon the language of film, focus on the emotion, the weight, the power, the resonance, and when fitting, infuse it with a dose of cultural relevance, history, politics, and social issues. What's the point? Why does it matter? What impact did a film have upon initial release? Why should we care today? How does a film balance its sound with its visuals? How does a character move about the space within a scene? What is the subtext? What makes Charlie Chaplin the greatest dictator? Why is Roy Neary the chosen one? What does Hush Puppy teach us about the constructs of reality? What truly lies beyond the infinite? How does all work and no play make Jack a dull boy? This podcast is about understanding cinema and the unique language it speaks. Sometimes these questions might lead to some dense traversals, but the more complexities a puzzle presents, the greater the payoff. So here's how this will work. Each episode, we will examine one specific film, 
and groups of episodes will be organized like a curriculum. For example, the subject matter of this first set of five episodes is called Politicinema, and will concentrate on films that bore substantial political commentary at the time they were released and still resonate to this day. Episodes will be bi-weekly, since they take quite a bit of time to construct comprehensively. Also, I know people are particularly busy nowadays, and it makes it a bit easier for you to make time for a screening if you haven't seen one of the selected films. Upcoming selections will be announced at the end of each episode as well as on the main website. That's at coffeeaftercredits.com. I only have three suggestions regarding how you view the selected screenings. Number one, keep an open mind. This is absolutely critical to the exploration of film. We must be open to different stories and perspectives, even if these sometimes might be difficult to confront or understand. Number two, I implore you, for the love of all that is good, put the damn phone away, please. A treat of viewing like driving a car. You'd be surprised what you miss when you avert your eyes, even only for a few seconds. Remember, cinema is many things, but it is predominantly a visual medium. Last but not least, number three. Enjoy yourself. Simple as that. Essentially, I wish for this to be an enriching experience. Think of it like a casual film course for you to engage with on your own terms. I come to you merely with my available writing tools, considerable film knowledge, and a caffeinated existential mind, hoping we can all learn something about cinema as well as ourselves. Now, with all that out of the way, I think it's time I pour myself a warm holiday dark roast to ease us into our first screening. If you haven't seen it, come back to this episode once you have. Uh, Don't worry, this will be the only instance that our selected screening is not announced in advance. Some of you might know a great deal about the film already. It's a staple in film studies, widely considered to be one of the greatest films ever made, and is currently ranked number three on the American Film Institute's list of the 100 greatest American films, just behind Citizen Kane and The Godfather. Its historical parallels are rather apparent, but I believe it serves as a great launch point for this podcast's debut and tunes our mind space to the forthcoming discourse in following episodes. Within its heart beats a robust allegory. It chronicles a personal reawakening. It's just as political as it is romantic. It's classic, palatable, and monumentally timeless. Directed by Michael Curtiz, produced by Hal Wallace, screenplay by Julius J. Epstein, Philip G. Epstein, and Howard Koch, starring Humphrey Bogart as Rick Blaine. Ingrid Bergman as Ilsa Lund, Paul Henry as Victor Laszlo, and Claude Rains as Captain Louis Renault. It's the 1942 romantic war drama Casablanca. This is Coffee After Credits. How long was it we had, honey? I didn't count the days. Well, I did. Every one of them. Mostly I remember the last one. A wild finish, a guy standing on a station platform in the rain with a comical look on his face because his insides had been kicked out. Can I tell you a story, Rick? Has it got a wild finish? I don't know the finish yet. Well, go on, tell us. Maybe one will come to you as you go along. Cinema, Part 1 Casablanca graced audiences 
at quite a unique time in history. It's a perfect example that demonstrates how people are cinema and how stories are essential in understanding our past. What do I mean by that? Well, to really understand, let me take it back. America, 1929. The nation rode the crescendo of the Roaring Twenties. Society had made impressively progressive strides. Women had been able to vote for nearly a decade. The arts were vitalized with fresh inspiration. The auto industry surged. Entertainment infrastructure grew exponentially. The music scene ushered in the jazz age. Technology generated a wave of telephones and radios. The origins of what we now consider popular culture took root. People had a reason to celebrate. Life was good. The United States had almost made it a full decade without any national calamities. Almost. October 24th, 1929. The day would become known as Black Thursday. The financial flourishment of the United States and all other Western industrialized nations came to a bitter end when Wall Street catastrophically crashed. To compare it to the 2008 recession, in which the worldwide GDP fell less than 1%, the Great Depression dropped the worldwide GDP by a staggering 15%. International trade, 50%. The gold standard, the fundamental monetary system of most major economies, was entirely abandoned. Americans suffered a rude awakening of how far and how quickly their lives could collapse. Severe inflation and widespread poverty made these incredibly trying times, and in these trying times, the people needed something, something, to get them through the day. You might already suspect where this is going. That's right, movies played a seminal role in the lives of the afflicted. The entertainment boom of the 20s brought hundreds upon hundreds more movie theaters into existence, bringing the national total to around 5,000 at the very least. And many of these weren't just small, old-fashioned theaters, no. Some of these were so large, so grand, that they were called movie palaces. They were the very definition of lavish, with opulent decor and a royal air of high society. Throughout the Depression, Americans went to the movies in droves, and this was for many reasons. Of course, with mass unemployment, Americans had quite a bit of spare time on their hands. Due to the state of the economy, admission was incredibly cheap. The film industry itself was directly bolstered by Franklin D. Roosevelt's New Deals of the 1930s. A new craze had also swept the world. The first talking picture, The Jazz Singer, had just released in 1927, only two years before the market crash. By the early 30s, talkies dominated the medium. Cinema was incredibly accessible. It was no longer associated with any particular social demographic. Anyone could buy a ticket take their seat, and experience a story. They might love it, they might hate it, one person's experience might not be the same as another's, but a movie could provide something profoundly important to the individual. For some, it was escapism, a distraction from their financially crippled lives. For others, it instilled hope and inspired the hearts and minds of viewers. Often, it could provide contemplative reflection. If any good came from the derelict state of the Western world amidst the Depression. People were given a chance to take pause, and this was partially facilitated by film. 
the invention and language of film is something that brought a nation together when it was at one of its lowest points in history. Casablanca premiered in November 1942, not even one full year after the United States declared war on the Axis powers. The United States remained neutral for the first two years of the Second World War while Germany swept across Europe with its unique blitzkrieg tactic. As of September 1939, marking the German invasion of Poland, the world order was rapidly being dismantled. In a small window of only two years, Poland, Denmark, Norway, and France had fallen under the boot of the Third Reich. The swastika flew above Paris. The nearly four-month Battle of Britain ensued. London was relentlessly bombed by the Luftwaffe for nearly four months. Operation Barbarossa launched and failed, with astronomical losses totaling six million military casualties between German and Soviet forces, and that's only military casualties. With the assistance of British forces, the powers of the Mediterranean and Middle East desperately struggled to repel the onslaught of fascist German and Italian forces. Hungary, Romania, and Slovakia joined the Axis powers with little choice in the matter. The geopolitical landscape of the Northeastern Hemisphere was entirely disrupted. The German, Italian, and Japanese war machines were committed to plaguing the first half of the 20th century with sweeping genocide. And throughout all these events, all of which occurred before December 1941, the United States remained in a state of relatively idle neutrality. The government did what it could to aid the Allies with financial support and gradually bolstered its own armed forces as it braced for the inevitable. But the people, the majority of the American people, were opposed to military involvement in what was quickly becoming the deadliest war in human history. They dared not risk their fragile recovery. But their stance was abruptly overturned when calamity struck. December 7th, 1941, a date which will live in infamy. The United States of America was suddenly and deliberately attacked by naval and air forces of the Empire of Japan. The attack on Pearl Harbor had forced the hand of Uncle Sam. The assault pierced the hearts of the American people, and the United States finally thrust itself into the Second World War. And the rest is brutal history. So what does this all have to do with Casablanca? Well, the film genuinely confronts the lingering real-world question. How do the American people address that initial idleness? It's not as if the public was unaware that the world was being ripped apart by fascist empires. For two years, headlines were inundated with stories of the fierce conflict overseas. Rick Blaine embodies that moral conflict. But before we focus on our protagonist, let's set the stage, shall we? How exactly did this film manifest? In 1941, on a trip to New York, Warner Brothers story editor Irene Diamond happened upon an unproduced play titled Everybody Comes to Rick's by Murray Bennett and Joan Allison. She then convinced producer Hal Wallace to purchase the rights in January 1942. By the time principal photography began, only the first half of the script was complete, and as a result, 
Most of the film was shot in sequence, quite a rarity in any era of cinema. Barring the opening airport scene and minimal stock footage of Paris, everything was shot on the Warner Brothers Studios lot in Burbank, and to keep costs down, dark shadows intentionally hide the barren areas of the set. The unique contrast of light and shadow set it apart from most films at the time, as this was, and still remains, an aesthetic generally associated with low-budget horror productions. In fact, the film cinematographer Arthur Edison had a background working for Universal on their Frankenstein films, and borrowed the horror lighting technique for Casablanca. As you probably discerned, the film boasts an incredibly high attention to detail, much of which can be attributed to Hal Wallace, who insisted on authenticity all the way down to real parrots on set. Timing is everything in the entertainment industry, and Casablanca was certainly no exception. As the 1942 liberation of North Africa was underway, by sudden order of the Warner Brothers marketing department, post-production turned into a mad rush to get the film released as soon as humanly possible to capitalize on the public mind share of the strategic military advancement. This box office blitz was so zealous, it nearly altered the famous ending. I think this is the beginning of a beautiful friendship, was nearly made the penultimate scene. There were plans to include an additional scene featuring Rick and Renault, joined with a detachment of free French troops aboard a ship bound for North Africa. As it turned out, Claude Rains was unable to shoot the additional scene, and it was eventually scrapped. The overall consensus is that this was a favorable outcome for the quality of the film, a notion with which I certainly agree. But enough creative logistics, let's get to the story itself. This depiction of the city of Casablanca provides a fascinating setting amid the turmoil overrunning Europe and North Africa. In reality, Lisbon, the destination our characters long for, was in fact an exceptionally rare, neutral, open, European Atlantic port. Through the Portuguese capital, nearly 100,000 refugees successfully escaped Nazi Germany and fled for the United States. That might sound like a comforting number, but compared to the millions upon millions of civilian deaths in the European theater in World War II, the comprehensive view is unfathomably dismal. Casablanca, on the other hand, was not exactly as dramatically fateful as portrayed in the film. Instead, its representation is a diverse amalgamation of the tumultuous region in which it resides. This depiction is quite plainly a wartime construct of conceptual purgatory. The fates of its inhabitants remain uncertain, and most of its inhabitants are morally ambiguous, or at least willing to consider morally ambiguous actions to advance their goal of escaping this purgatory. Fascist authority rules supreme here, almost narratively emulating a Hitchens-esque contempt for a totalitarian limbo of souls. And the leading characters who exist in this limbo are captivating to the point of becoming synonymous with classical cinema. Film lovers commonly refer to them as Bogart and Bergman. Their on-screen chemistry is nothing short of mesmerizing. I'm unable to think of better words to capture it than those of esteemed film critic Roger Ebert, who beautifully described, she paints his face with her eyes. 
The soft light cast upon Ilsa emphasizes an angelic radiance. She's an individual with righteous ideals. But from the moment they encounter each other in that gin joint, we realize they have a painful, damaged history. Rick wants to deny his own discontent. He never wants to hear as time goes by. Sure, it reminds him of Ilsa, the love of his life, whom he finds himself unable to relinquish to time. But the symbolism stretches well beyond that. The last we see of the events in Paris bears not only heartbreak, as German forces reach the borders of the City of Lights. Rick and Ilsa plan to flee the fallen capital together. Much to our initial dismay, Ilsa abandons the romantic plan, leaving Rick alone, who crossly boards the locomotive and runs away from geopolitical conflict, as well as what we can presume is the lowest moment of his life. As time goes by, is an audible memory of that exact moment. And for a year and a half, Rick festered. He grew bitter. He's a sad protagonist. He's hardened. Above all, he's dispassionate. But we know, we know Rick isn't a heartless bastard. In the first act, we're informed Rick ran weapons to Ethiopia during the Second Italo-Ethiopian War and fought for the Loyalists in the Spanish Civil War. He certainly is a man of principles, strong moral fiber, but we find him broken. The Rick to whom we are introduced is merely a husk, a shadow of his former self, living in denial of the man he once was. He shuns his own morality, despite its preservation. Now let's parallel this character flaw with the United States, a nation with history firmly and proudly rooted in the resistance against imperial tyranny. As the world began to crumble with millions upon millions of corpses piling ever higher, the American people had only quite recently recovered from the Great Depression. With concern exclusively reserved for national domestic issues and economic stability, the United States responded to the will of its people and maintained a firm isolationist policy. Rick's Cafe emulates that long-sought economic stability. It's comfortable, reliable, and safe, or at least as safe as you could be in North Africa circa 1941. With that security, Rick has power. America had power. But neither were doing much with that power. A third entity broke this idleness. Hollywood had power. Not economic, not political. Hollywood had emotional power. In this case, that power manifested itself through pathos. And that pathos was embodied by a woman named Madeleine Lebeau. Who is Madeleine Lebeau? Well, you already know who she is. You see her when Victor Laszlo strikes up the French national anthem, La Marseillaise, in defiance of the fascist patron's German patriotic anthem. And this specific juxtaposition wasn't exactly revolutionary. Jean Renoir's Grand Illusion was the original source of the technique five years earlier. But this scene is enhanced by the fact that many of the extras on set 
happened to be actual European refugees who had fled to Hollywood in their escape from lethal persecution. The weeping, sinning woman on whom the camera focuses shares that story and is played by French actress Madeleine Lebeau. With her husband, who also appears in the film to award Renault his gambling winnings, Lebeau fled Paris just as the German army approached the city. The facial image of her husband had been circulated through Nazi propaganda intended to distinguish physical features the Reich considered Jewish. Fittingly, Lebeau and her husband reached Lisbon and booked passage to America on a Portuguese cargo ship using forged Chilean visas. Now that's what I call breaking into Hollywood. The tears that run from her eyes in Casablanca are purely genuine. There's an authentic spirit about the film, and the story bears its heart quite openly to the viewer. But what of our protagonist? As I mentioned before, Rick isn't entirely hollow, and clearly demonstrates accordingly. Bulgarian refugee Anina Brandel approaches Rick as her husband gambles for their future and discloses Renault has offered exit visas to her and her husband. Unfortunately, the fleeing couple are unable to afford the precious papers. The sleazy Renault has made an alternate offer to provide the visas in exchange for, well, shall we awkwardly say, her physical faculties. This desperate young woman is the fortunate recipient of Rick's generosity as he fixes the roulette table in favor of Anina's husband. Now able to properly pay for the visas, the act mirrors the limited financial support the United States provided to Allied powers in the years leading up to American involvement. A key line of dialogue can be identified when Anina is contemplating the morality of sleeping with Renault to acquire the exit visas and keeping that possible truth from her husband. She asks Rick if someone loved you very much so that your happiness was the only thing that she wanted in the world, but she did a bad thing to make certain of it. Could you forgive her? The question echoes in his mind. But this story wouldn't be compelling if that forgiveness was easy to realize. This is where a dramatic shift punctuates the end of the second act. Ilsa draws a revolver on Rick in private, demanding the letters of transit. To a contemporary audience, the scene probably comes across as melodramatic, but there's quite a bit to unpack in this confrontation. Ilsa is desperate to change Rick's heart, and while it seems she results to using force, she doesn't want to pull the trigger, nor are we supposed to believe she is willing to. On the surface, she withdraws her threat and admits her affection. But in this vulnerable state, an exchange between two individuals transpires. Rick desires the knowledge that Ilsa experienced in some capacity the heartache that plagued him for the last year and a half. And this need for empathy is well met. He offers the letters of transit, but places Ilsa under the impression that they will flee Casablanca together and leave Laszlo behind to fend for himself. For Rick, this is the easy way out, a tempting exit door leading to a comfortable sanctuary. Leaving a fight to be fought 
by other combatants who are already locked into an inescapable battle of civilizations was quite literally a possible path for the United States to steer toward, that is, up until Pearl Harbor, of course. The tightening grip of the fascist fist on French Morocco was certainly a concerning threat, and Rick's initial passivity is largely unconcerned with the imminent turmoil. Ilsa tells him Victor Laszlo will die in Casablanca, and he responds, What of it? I'm going to die in Casablanca. It's a good place for it. This dialogue can be simplified. You can almost imagine two American citizens on American soil conversing as the rest of the Western world crumbles. One, an idealist. The other, an isolationist. The conversation broaches the conflict overseas. The idealist? People are dying. We should do something. The isolationist? What of it? Everybody dies. I'm going to die. This position is fundamentally apathetic and morally dubious, but also warrants the contextualization of fragile economic recovery. Before the day that will live in infamy, this elevated adherence to risk aversion was the dominant position regarding American involvement in the European theater. Little does Ilsa know that the American in this particular story in which she exists does not share this perspective. And by the time that plane finally leaves the runway on that foggy night, we can infer that happiness isn't the only factor in our leading character's romantic fate. Nor is it necessarily fear of persecution. Rick mentions he and Ilsa would likely eventually find themselves in a concentration camp if they were to remain in Casablanca. Remember, Everybody Comes to Rick's, the script on which the film is based, was written in 1940. For the targeted audience of both versions, American, it's a pre-war narrative for a nation at war. And although the United States had been at war for about a year at the time of release of the film, the world was completely, utterly unprepared to face the horrors that awaited deep in Hitler's hellscape. In 1942, the phrase concentration camp did not mean what it means today. The gruesome discovery of the first concentration camp in Nazi Germany wasn't made until the summer of 1944, when the Soviets liberated Montenegro in Poland, and the Americans didn't liberate a camp until Buchenwald in Germany in April of the following year. At its core, what truly motivates the romantic reconciliation and our leading characters to let each other go their separate ways is responsibility. Rick states, it doesn't take much to see that the problems of three little people don't amount to a hill of beans in this crazy world. This one line encapsulates the primary theme of the entire film, and it's one with which I agree. Their problems don't matter. Neither does their love for each other. But their actions do matter. Our actions do matter. Our actions are moral feats of micro-proportions that contribute to the potential of a macro-outcome. And that is why I think we find these characters so appealing, even 75 years later. It's not only the mystique of Rick's brooding yet confident demeanor 
nor the magnetism of Ilsa's passionate charm. It runs deeper than that. They're admirable. Those we admire most in the world are usually individuals who bear great responsibility. They carry a heavy burden and sacrifice for the betterment of humankind. U.S. Army General George Patton eventually led the Third Army in supporting the liberation of the French capital. Tragically, he would perish less than six months after the German surrender as the result of a car accident. Part of me wonders what he would have thought if he ever had the chance to hear the American expatriate of our story reaffirm. We'll always have Paris. And so, that brings this inaugural episode to a close. In two weeks, we'll leap forward 15 years and explore a film that speaks volumes, volumes, about the turbulent political landscape in which we find ourselves today. Directed by Aliyah Kazan, story and screenplay by Bud Schulberg. It's the 1957 drama, A Face in the Crowd. I'm looking forward to it, and I hope you enjoy the film. Uh, if you like this episode, the podcast should be made fully available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher by the next episode. So please subscribe on your platform of choice and pass the word along to those who might also be interested. Great reviews are very much appreciated, and if you'd like to peek ahead at the episodes to come... Check the website for a larger view of the upcoming slate. That's at coffeeaftercredits.com. Thank you so much for listening. Uh, This is a project of mine that I've been slowly developing for over a year and a half. There are topics scheduled that I've been absolutely dying to discuss, and I have a loose trajectory for where I'd like to take this endeavor in the long run. I'm thrilled to finally share it with you all, and truly excited for the episodes to come. I'm Jay Schonkweiler, and thanks again for joining me for Coffee After Credits. Coffee After Credits.